Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Today's episode is the first of a two-part feature on the coronavirus pandemic, which is meant to build on the information shared in our community resource guide, which you can find on Instagram at bettertospeak underscore and on our website at bettertospeak.org slash health dash COVID-19. I literally just got off the phone with our first guest and I'm super eager to share this with y'all, so I'll introduce her and let y'all get into it. I spoke with Tasca Lisa Lloyd, who's an award-winning digital communications expert with a background in sociology. I connected with her off a thread she recently shared on Twitter about the coronavirus pandemic, which touched on the broader idea of collectivism, the idea that an individual should place community above themselves. And I thought this would be a great place to start the conversation to frame it for young people like myself who may still be struggling to fully comprehend this pandemic and also to navigate it. You can find her thread on her social media, which is at T underscore Lloyd on Twitter and at Tasca.com on Instagram, both of which will be linked in the show description. And again, you can find Better to Speak on social media at Better to Speak underscore and on our website, BetterToSpeak.org. So my first question touches on, again, the thread that you posted. So why is it that the mass population, specifically young people, are having such a hard time just staying at home? Well, young people do what they're taught, right? So we've never really taught our children collectivism as a core value. When you're in kindergarten, you learn how to share. You learn how to take care of your cubby neighbor and things like that. But once you start getting up there in junior high, high school, college, it really becomes self-sufficiency and independence. You're not really working in group settings unless you are on a team, for instance. But other than that, as a core community value, we don't instill collectivism. And so now what we're up against is here we are in a crisis We want the outcome that collectivism would give us, but we haven't spent enough time teaching it. Now that we're teaching collectivism, you have to also think about the application process. So just because you teach someone something on Monday does not mean that they're going to understand it and apply it by Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about this learning curve that we're on because we didn't do this when they were younger. And so now we're kind of reaping the consequences of that. Right. And then one of my other questions was, um, do you think that this pandemic will change that? I think, do we have um, enough time maybe for that learning curve that you were talking about for us to wake up and understand the importance of collectivism? Absolutely not. Um, so, and I don't mean, <laughs> that sounded really pessimistic, but yeah. what I'm saying is a typical workplace culture takes around seven years mm. to change. And we think about the world as we know it. And then even if we drill it down to the country as we know it, that's not enough time. Um, I don't think we're going to get to this point where collectivism will be, uh embedded into our culture enough to have a better outcome of this pandemic no because it it spreads so fast that the damage has been done right the 14 day incubation period is is upon us and we're we're almost at the end of the 14 days so now we're about to see all of these new cases rolling in so i don't think we're in the space 
to change rapidly like we once could have had we had the appropriate information and had we already had a collectivist attitude. But even saying all that, I think that even if we do come together and say, all right, we're going to practice quarantining, we're going to adhere to quarantining guidelines, what I do think will happen is much is very similar to what happened after 9-11. We were really united. We were helping each other out. And then once it got out of the news cycle, we forgot. We forgot about the first responders. We forgot about the families who lost um, members. We forgot about the kids who were orphaned. We forgot about the construction site even. I'm a native New Yorker. And after 9-11, I didn't even want to see that place. Like I've, I've probably been down there one time since the attack. Um, and, and, and that's just true for most of us. Once it's out of the news cycle, we completely forget and we go back to our normal way of living. What is a, an underlying factor to consider now is the use of technology. With the use of technology, will we be able to sustain collectivism? The, the, the message is spreading further with social media. The message is bigger on social media. Um, and now we're seeing the effects across the world. So maybe those factors will impact how we adopt collectivism and if we'll adopt it long-term. And then the one part of your thread that stood out to me the most was when you said that in order for it to really click for people, like we need to believe the thread and understand the, the gravity of it, um, which I think specifically applies to young people like myself, because I see the news, I see the social media dialogue, but I think that there's still something that doesn't click as far as like the reality of it. Um, mm -hmm. So, and another thing that you mentioned was like just the privilege that some Americans hold just after like not having experienced anything like this. Like you said, 9-11 was even kind of like a reach for, you know, young people like myself who I was like three years old when that happened. So don't really, <laughs> who don't really understand again that gravity. So can you speak that privilege that you hold? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're extremely blessed, right? And that is a blessing and I don't, wanna, I don't want you to think otherwise, right? You are extremely blessed that you live in a country in a geographic location that you are not uh, accustomed to mass, massive disasters, right? That's a blessing. We have to own that and appreciate it. Okay, cool. The privilege though is the ignorance. Mm -hmm and not understanding that there are people in our own country who are regularly experiencing fires, hurricanes, floods, humongous snowstorms, all these natural disasters, so to speak. We as Americans don't understand real fear. Mm -hmm as a whole. Now there are pockets of people who do, right? People who survived Hurricane Katrina, people who survived Hurricane Harvey and things like that. But as a whole, we just happen to be in a country where there's not like a hurricane that will hit all of America at the same time. Like that's just not our reality. If you go to a Caribbean country, that is the reality. That's where my family is from. The reality is an, a hurricane or a live volcano, which we do have, could wipe out the whole island. This is how we have been 
taught to process. And this is the reality that we've grown up understanding our entire lives. When you live in a country that doesn't have that at play, you become kind of immune to the problems that come with that. So we don't believe the threat is real, real because we don't see people dropping. When you think about bodies, I think Italy yesterday was at more than 600 people dead. When you think about 600 people dead, you can't even fathom what that looks like. You've never seen 600 caskets. You've never seen a mass grave up front. You have never even seen, like not you in particular, but most people have never seen the damaging effects of cancer day in and day out. They typically only see the end. Oh, that person lost weight. Oh, they died, right? You don't see the day-to-day -day, uh, decline. And because of that, you don't understand that kind of fear. So, of course, you're kind of, it's hard for you to change your daily behavior based on something you can't visualize. And that is, that is really um, what we have to think about. Like one example, and this, this can be a trigger for some, is if you've ever been a rape victim or known a rape victim before the rape and after the rape, it's totally different. The way she or he interacts with people is different. They might have anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. They might move differently in the world. It's similar. We don't move differently because we haven't really been close enough to the problem and we haven't experienced the problem ourselves. So it's very hard for us to change our daily behavior based on something that doesn't feel real. And that is really based on how protected we are as a, a community. Uh, one year, when I was in college, I went to France for like Thanksgiving break. And I got off the train and their soldiers were carrying the large rifles. And I was in shock. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was ready to go home, okay? Because why do you need a rifle at the train station? But it was my first time seeing a military presence embedded in everyday life. Mm -hmm. That's not normal for Americans. You don't ever see our army. You don't ever see our military just walking down the street with rifles. That's not our reality. So when it comes to being afraid of war, you don't even know how to be afraid of war because you've never even seen a semblance of it. You've never been inconvenienced by it. You don't even know it exists. It's all theoretical in your head. And so our government, our teachers, our elders, people who have seen some things and have been through some things, it is our responsibility to translate that story in a way that you can understand and empathize with in the way that makes you change your daily behavior. And when we're seeing that you don't change your daily behavior, the, the first response shouldn't be to condemn, but change our approach. Now, like you said, the spring breakers, clearly they blowed my mind that they were out there. Blew my mind that they were out there. But it's not, it's not a thing to condemn them. We need to change our, the way we teach. How can we teach you what fear looks like? How can we get it through your head that this is real, this is not theoretical? And that is 
partly in due and partly because of the media that we've had so much fake news we've had so much um redefining what the truth is we've had so much illegitimate information coming out that people are rightfully skeptical so are we going to hold our news stations to a, a higher standard because now it seems like we've been crying wolf mm-hmm. especially with this administration people don't know what to panic about because you've had us in a constant state of panic since you've been elected mm-hmm. So now I'm all out of panic. I have no, I have no more panic left in me. And so, and that is, that is something that we have to really understand. And that's part of communications is how do we put out information? Number one, how do we pace it so that humans have an opportunity to apply it to their everyday lives? And three, how do we frame it in a way that tends to the different audiences? What I say to you I'm a, are you a black woman? Yes. Okay. What I say to you as a black woman, we speak a whole different language. We do to each other. I say sis to you. You won't, you won't even think about it. I say sis to Mary Margaret. She's going to be like, <laughs> what do you mean? Right? right? So if I'm talking to you, I got to talk to you in, a, in, the, in the language you understand. And then I have to talk to this person in a language they understand. And it's the responsibility of the storytellers to do that. We cannot get tired. We have to keep telling the story in all of the languages that can be understood. Because we don't want a group of people not adhering to the new quarantine guidelines because we haven't framed the story in a way that creates a sense of urgency and compassion at the same time. Right. And that's exactly on my next question. Like, as far as messaging, how do you strike that balance between making people clearly aware and then without leading into like excessive fear mongering? So I think it's pacing the conversation, right? And um, if you think about it, I come, keep coming up with these weird examples. But if you think of, I've, I am a mom, so I've given physical birth. I have, and I've given physical birth because some moms adopt, still moms. Uh, I gave birth and during the labor, they're constantly pacing you to get to the finish line. So I had a natural labor, no drugs. And the fear was she can't get tired. She has to be awake to push. And so they were pacing me, pacing me and pacing the pain and pacing the contractions to be like, all right, she's getting tired. We need to maybe put her to sleep so that she can get some rest so that she can wake up and deliver this baby. It's the same way. We don't want to create fear. So we have to push out the information in pieces. Now, this information, again, we've had this information since January, Mm -hmm. right? And our administration and the media didn't really start paying attention till the end of February. And then when it got to the end of February, it was a dire situation, right? And so all of the communication coming out of that was crisis, 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 pandemic, 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 um, quarantine, 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 social distancing, death, 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 no vaccine. This was the messaging. Imagine what the messaging would have looked like if we had two more months, Mm -hmm. two more months to get people more prepared with the understanding that there is a flu type virus going around 
that it will find its way on our shores, that you need to start preparing piece by piece. Because had we known about this three months ago, we might still have food on the shelves and toilet paper because we would have been doing it incrementally. Incrementally. Now we're doing it in a state of panic. And one part of, of being the mom of a teenager is teaching her things every single day, regular things. Here's what you do if I don't come home at night, right? Because I'm supposed to come home. <laughs> and so if I don't, something has happened. Here's what you do. Call your grandmother, call my sister, blah, blah, blah. I do this on normal days because when you are in a crisis, you don't think clearly. Mm-hmm. The government, our government has put us in a crisis with the communications flow that they've chosen. And now they expect us to think logically. We're in crisis. Everybody's panicking. That's just how the brain works. So it, it, we have to parse out the information on a timeline that gives people an opportunity to understand what's happening to see where they fit in that, how to prepare their families, and then we deal with the crisis when it's here. But you cannot expect someone to be sane or to be calm or to be indifferent when, what if your mother is halfway across the country and you got shut down, you learned of the pandemic on Monday, got shut down by Thursday, You haven't had time to buy a flight. You haven't had time to make other arrangements. You haven't had time to get back with your family, nothing. Of course, people are panicking. And and that is is where I, that is one of the areas where the government and our media dropped the ball, is communicating in a way that was thoughtful and communicating in time so that we could have made a shift if necessary, which we ended up having to do anyway, but now we're panicking. So mm-hmm. there's that. And another point about messaging that I'm starting to see is that people are saying that social distancing isn't actually effective as effective of a messaging strategy as we first thought. Um, so can you explain your perspective on that and why we should just stay, stay home? It's more effective. I'm so glad you asked that because I literally just told somebody this right before we got on this call. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm from the social sciences house, I guess, and medical sciences, they're in another house, okay? A lot of times, uh, we don't see eye to eye. We just don't. I mean, and there's reasons for that, but generally speaking, we all follow evidence-based research, so there is that mutual respect. We just have different ways of going about it. Here's the problem with the medical science house is that they don't use language that the community at large can understand. They use language that they understand, that they work within. And if you've ever seen a medical dictionary, it's about this thick. Mm -hmm. Very different from the Webster's Dictionary. What does that tell you? That we are using two different languages. Social distancing, if I could do anything, if I had like a little magic wand, I would not use that term. And I'm gonna tell you why. 
Social distancing is inaccurate. It makes people think that they will not have access to other human beings. And that's not true. We are the most social we have ever been in the history of mankind. Physically, we cannot be in the same room or within six feet of each other, especially after having traveled or been in large crowds. That's true. Physically, our bodies should not be coming in contact with one another. But socially, you have FaceTime, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, you have Facebook. Did I say Facebook? I probably did. You have Snapchat, you have Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts, Zoom, Skype. You are very capable of still being social in the midst of a pandemic because we have Wi-Fi and internet and access and all of these things. I do believe that the term social distancing was medical and it did not translate well to the layman audience. I, this is a hill I'm willing to die on, sis. I'm, <laughs> I'm over it. And I'm over it because just that term alone makes people feel like, they can't hang out, they can't do this, they can't do that. They're like, they're missing 100% of human connection, which is false, it's false, it's not true. You are distancing physically, but you're not socially distanced. You're really not, because you still have the ability to connect with people and large amounts of people at the same time. Zoom, I was in a meeting the other day on Zoom with 400 people. That's pretty social, if you ask me, okay? And the medical science group has not even taken into account that the definition of social has changed. It has changed over the years. It now includes social media. If the word includes, so if it includes social media, and social media is still up and thriving, how is it social distancing? How? 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 Now, Oh. <laughs> it bothers me because we needed another term that inspired virtual connection instead of creating panic over physical connection being lost or physical distance, I should say. How was there a way to, th there was a way, I haven't thought of it yet, but I'll think about a term and I'll send it to you when I, whenever I get it or post it or something. Mm -hmm. But there was a better way to inspire folks to spend more time with each other virtually than to highlight everything that they're missing physically. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like dealing with a kid. I'm, I'm a mom, so I keep bringing that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like where all my examples come from. It's like a kid, and they want to go to the park, but it's raining, and you really don't want to go to the park, but they're crying because you promised them that you were going to take them to the park. You can't say, I'm not going to the park. Every That's a rookie mistake. You can't say, little Bobby, I'm not taking you to the park. You got to say, ooh, we're having ice cream in the living room completely distract them from the fact that they are not going to the park today. Right? right? Like it's a totally different reaction than, than saying, Bobby, we're not going to the park and now you have a meltdown. Now you got a three-year-old in your living room on the floor. People work similarly. Even adult humans work that way as well. 
we should have spent more time focusing on how to engage better virtually than to spend so much time making people feel like the physical distance is the end all be all is the loss you'll never see your friends again get over it um what <laughs> why, why why did we choose that route and 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 that is that is a problem with our systems is that we don't think on on a on a community level we don't think that data and storytelling have to work hand in hand they have to medical science needs to be informed by social science and vice versa those those people at the top have to talk to each other because had they brought in some social science folks social science folks would have told them you might not want to use that term here's why just just saying if we run a test on that term if i think of another term to to encourage virtual connection versus social distancing i would bet a little bit of money because you know I can't spend all my money. <laughs> I can't wild out now. But I would I would bet a little bit of money that people would prefer the term that isn't social distancing. Right. And 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 that's just that's that's just that was a mistake or a judgment call that completely changed the trajectory of the quarantine. Mm-hmm. And on that note, what are some specific actions that we can take to, again, promote that virtual connection and just collectivism more broadly, like throughout the duration of this pandemic and in general? So I think one thing that I would say to do differently is to actively engage. So what social media has done is sometimes we think we're engaging when we like something or even repost it or retweet it, right? That is a form of engagement. It's not a connection, though. And we have to decide which is more important, engaging or connecting. You engage with a picture I post by liking it. That's engagement. You connect with me when you message me and say, hey, where'd you get that top? Mm. And so what we need to do is more connection. You're on social media anyway. Instead of pressing or instead of only pressing the like button, send a message have a conversation instead of doing a live for everyone all the time maybe video chat one person at a time now lives are still good because it's still um you can actually add someone into the live so it's a face-to-face kind of thing but connecting it's harder to connect with 100 people in the room so maybe doing facetime or ig video with an individual maybe you know you you have you have to eat every day I'm hoping you eat every day at least three times you have to eat every day how about you FaceTime a friend over breakfast we have to get away from being too cool to care you're in the I, I work remotely I've been working remotely for like five years but full-time for like a year now And I'm kind of used to like walking around my own house and kind of playing things out loud in my own head. But 
my friends, some of my friends don't work from home. They're not used to that. They're used to being in an office. So when I do have a break in my day from a meeting, I make it a point to FaceTime one of my friends to let them know that we can still forge human relationships virtually. Like you can still see my face. I can see yours. You can, you can see if I'm upset, if I'm sad, if I'm happy. You can see me in a way that you wouldn't be able to see me if you only click like or reshared my post. So I think that's what we have to do. We have to take another step. We have to take another push and say, it's not enough to engage by liking or even, even commenting, maybe, maybe not be enough because people just comment sometimes. You know, you can send those little emojis real quick, real fast. Um, but saying something, saying something and having a conversation with someone go the extra step don't keep scrolling stop if they have a picture of the baby because people post their kids all the time yes like the picture that's great message the mom or the dad and say how are you doing working with little bobby at home now how's that going are you in the terrible twos what's going on Right? That's a totally different experience, a very different experience. And we have to push for that. We have to reach out to one another in a way that is tangible and in a way that people can remember. If somebody liked that thread a uh, hundred times, what does that mean for me? Right. You, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you liked it, but maybe you liked it because you wanted to go back to it. Or maybe you liked it because you agreed with it. Or maybe you liked it just because you were scrolling too fast and your fingernail tapped the heart button. But when you send me a message and you say, hey, can you elaborate on this? Or you made me think differently about this. Let's talk about it. That's what I remember. That is what you remember. That is how we teach. And so that's what we have to do. We have to start opening doors and we have to start communicating and connecting instead of just engaging, just digesting. We have to be more reciprocal with our, with our words and our actions and our thoughts. We have to give and get. And sometimes that is, you know, sometimes that is the job of certain people and not others right like if you're an extrovert and you you are energized by people maybe you take the lead maybe you take the lead on that and 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 call in someone who's an introvert maybe because maybe they won't take that step maybe they don't like to do that we got to see where we fit in this puzzle and we got to see what we are willing to do and capable of doing in that puzzle piece. So if you're the extrovert, you make the call. The introvert, they're already giving some energy by even answering because that's not their, that's not their swag. That's not how they feel rejuvenated. They feel more drained than, than anything. But sometimes we have to figure out where we fall on those social scales and say, okay, what is the action that aligns with my social personality and what can I do? What is that and if I can do it? And then what are some like last words um, of encouragement, advice, whatever that you give to young people in the midst of this pandemic? 
Oh man, last words. That sounds morbid. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. For the interview. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, to young people. Okay. So the young people, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 21. 21. Oh, what a great age. What a great age. <laughs> um, 22 is really good too. Um, what I would tell young people is we're done raising you. Mm -hmm. right we're done raising we uh, your parents your guardians have given you all that they have at this by this by 21 you've gotten the best of us we, we've given you all we can now it is your job to apply that and if you want to see this culture change you have to start changing it um we're he we're on our way out right if 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 i influence a policy or something i'm probably not going to reap the benefits of it it's probably going to get passed down to the two generations after me so it's in your hands you know because if, the, if you're really if you really want to get morbid like and and honest right this virus is targeting older people period older people and Im immunocompromised people if we're only even focusing on older people if the older people are passing away as a result of contracting coronavirus who is this world who is this world left to you it's in your hands literally in your hands so i would i would tell all young people we're done raising you it is your turn to take over and you are, you are going to have to start building the world that you want to see. You are going to have to start being the leaders that you want. You are going to have to start being the neighbor you wish you had. You are going to have to start being the person you needed when you were younger. It's go time now. You know, like, like recess is over. We are in real times, real crisis. You are adults now at this point. And unfortunately, young adults, and I, I wish you had more time to be careless and reckless and, and just live without thinking. I wish you did have more time. The reality today is that we are being confronted with something that is unprecedented and time has run out. And, and you all need to know that this administration is not working for you. It's working for that particular group of rich white men, mm. rich older white men. So you, yeah, I would tell young people, get prepared. It's, it's, it's time to take everything you learn and apply it. All right, thank you so much. Thank you.